Amen. I don't know how much time you spend on YouTube, but if you ever spend any time on YouTube, when you finish a YouTube video, it pops up all of these other videos that you can watch. Most of the time, I've got better things to do with my time, but every once in a while, there's a video that I just feel like I have to watch, and this is one I found. It's uh, from Camp Pendleton. It's a number of United States Marine Corps, and they're singing The Days of Elijah. And, and I must admit, there's something about watching a bunch of young men singing loud and excited about what they're singing. But there was part of the song that really kind of caught my attention. It, it, they're going to get to the chorus here in just a second, and I think it will get louder, I hope. that really kind of drew my attention to it. And I, I love their reaction as they personalize it just a little bit. Hoorah lets you know that it is the Marine Corps. But do you have any idea where the chant hoorah comes from? If you answer no, that is the correct answer because nobody really knows for certain. I was doing some reading this week and there are all kinds of myths, just in case. I don't want to offend anybody. If you're in the Navy, it's hoo If you're in the Army, it's hoorah. And it's oorah if you're a Marine Corps. But, but there's all kinds of theories. One says it goes back to the Seminole Indians back during the Revolutionary War time. One says it goes clear back to the Middle Ages and a Turkish command to attack. My favorite is a legend that takes it back to World War II and the 82nd Airborne. During the World War II, there were a number of new types of, of uh, warfare being used. One of them was planes. In World War I, they used planes to, to a, a slight amount, but in World War II, they used them to drop bombs. They used them to, for fighters, and yes, they even began to use them to drop parachute troops especially D-Day and moving forward, it became a huge part of the Allied strategy. But you can imagine being a paratrooper brought with it all kinds of unique and dangerous possibilities. You could easily die before the first shot of the enemy was fired. And as they were training, it was expected that they would listen carefully, and as the legend goes, their response was, H. U-A, hoorah, standing for heard, understood, acknowledged, and accepted. May I suggest that's Romans 10. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me back to the book of Romans? We uh, find ourselves in Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter two, 10 is this incredible discussion of what the gospel is. And Paul, maybe better than any place in all of his writing, tries to help us understand how do we accept this gospel, and yet I fear sometimes we miss the big point of Romans 10. The point of Romans 10 is not so much to explain the gospel, although he does a wonderful job of that. The point of Romans 10 is answering the question, what about Israel? 
Uh, Israel was clearly God's chosen nation. And, and Paul, you said that, that those who were foreknown and, and predestined and called will be justified and ultimately glorified. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If that's true, how do you explain Israel? And Paul in chapters 9 and 11 goes to great lengths to answer that question. And chapter 9, his answer is, God is sovereign. He can show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy to. He can show compassion to whoever he wants to show compassion to. Who are you as a pot thinking you can argue against the potter? He says not everyone who was of the physical ancestry of Abraham was ever intended to be part of the people of promise. And thus God gets to choose. Next week, we're going to get to chapter 11, and Paul's answer to that question is going to be, yes, Israel has been set aside largely, but there is still a remnant, and there is still a future. But in chapter 10, Paul's answer is, Israel was set aside because they rejected the gospel. It was their choice, and they said no. And so this morning, I want to read all of Romans chapter 10. I know it's a rather lengthy passage, but I think it really is important to keep it in its context. Paul writes these words, Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and, and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes it in this way. The righteousness that is by law, the man does what does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, it is in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with a heart that you believe and are justify and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved as the scripture says anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved how then can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news but not all the Israelites accept the good news for Isaiah says Lord who has believed our message consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ but I ask did they not hear of course they did their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Isaiah boldly says, I, I was found by those who did not seek me. I reveal myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands as a hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is going to begin by sharing his passion. And as I have shared several times now, on Wednesday nights for Awana, we're going through the life of the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that really intrigues me is if you go back to the book of Acts, 
almost all of the opposition Paul faced was from Jews. He was in prison in the city of Philippi, and once he leaves Philippi, he ends up in Thessalonica, and he's only there for three weeks until the Jews chase him out of Thessalonica, and he goes to the city of Berea, and the Bereans are excited to receive his message until the Jews from Thessalonica come down to the city of Berea, and they chase Paul out of the city of Berea, and he has to go to Athens. He eventually ends up in the city of Corinth where God protects him, but he protects him even though the Jews once again attack him. And there's a big part of me that wonders, why doesn't Paul just give up on the Jews? I I mean, I would say enough is enough. You guys deserve whatever you're going to get. I'm done with you. But he never does. Because Paul loved the Jews so much so that this is the beginning of chapter 9. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit able to say, I would be willing to go to hell if it meant all of my brothers and sisters would be in heaven. Paul's passion, Paul's prayer was for those who didn't seem to want it. But then Paul moves to his presentation of the gospel. He explains the gospel, and we looked at verses 6 through 14 last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but he begins by saying that the gospel is near us, that you don't have to run up into heaven and pull down Christ. No, the incarnation, he came. You don't have to go into hell and try and find him because he rose from the dead. He is near you. His words are in your mouth, and because they're in your mouth, all of us can confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and we will be saved. Paul is going to share that this is two-sided coin that involves the willingness to declare Jesus is Lord. And if you were here last week, we spent a fair amount of time trying to understand that that for a Jew was a claim to deity. For a Greek, it was a claim to sovereignty. And claiming Jesus is my Lord is the willingness to say that you are my God and my King and I will live for you but that only happens when we, in our hearts, believe. I'm convinced it's a double-sided coin that you don't have one side without the other, but this is available to everyone. Paul goes out of his way to say that, that it is available to Jew, to Gentile, to rich, to poor, to male, to female, to slaves, to free, it doesn't matter. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how do we call? If I can just pick up the, the story, I, I'd call it the path of the gospel. I don't know if that's the best word or not, but it's the best one I could come up with. He, he throws out these four questions. How do we get to the place we're willing to call? Well, there are four steps. The first is that how then can you call on the one in whom you have not believed? He talks about calling, but I would argue in Paul's mind it is absolutely unthinkable that you would ever call on something you didn't first believe in. And it is completely incomprehensible to Paul that you would believe in something that you're not willing to call. Just before the service, somebody came up to me and shared that he was once part of a discussion going back and forth. Do you have to uh, believe in your mind or in your heart? And I believe strongly Paul would answer that, yes, it involves all of you. It's not like I can say Jesus is Lord but not really believe it. And it is incomprehensible to think I would believe it and not be willing to say it. So Paul says that we call the moment we have believed, and I like that little word in. It may seem like an insignificant word, but I do think it's an important word. See, you and I believe lots of things. I I, I believe that Joe Biden is president. 
I believe that he has powers that I do not. I do not believe in Joe Biden for my ultimate salvation. I don't believe in any president for that. In a few minutes, we're going to gather around the communion table. I believe the communion table is incredibly important. It's a wonderful reminder. It's one of the few physical reminders we have in the New Testament of God's amazing sacrifice for us. And it is important. But my faith is not in communion. My faith is in Christ alone. And I believe when Paul says, I believe in, he is speaking specifically that I have staked my eternity's destiny on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for me. Those who believe in, call. But how in the world do you get around to believing? Well, you must hear. You must hear. Paul is going to, in verse number 17, go on to say that faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of God. Why do we take 30 to 40 minutes of our 60-minute service for me to stand up in front of you and talk? It's certainly not because I enjoy listening to myself. I doubt that it's even that you enjoy listening. It's because hearing God's word is the only hope that we have. I think it's kind of interesting because we live in such a different era. I'm guessing few of us hear God's word. We read God's word. And now, 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 please don't hear me to say that you should stop reading God's word. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But in Paul's day, that was nearly impossible. The printing press hadn't been invented. Smartphones didn't have apps that you could find your Bible and choose the, the plan and the, the translation you wanted. That, that didn't exist. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for cities not even to have a full copy of God's word. To actually have the privilege of reading was incredibly rare. And so how did they get God's word? They sat down. And they listened. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have radios. The evening events, most often in a Jewish house, was sitting around as the father quoted from memory God's word and as the children began to work on it. They heard God's word. Can I challenge you to try something? I I, I think reading is a wonderful thing and I, I am in no way trying to dissuade you from reading God's word. But it is different when you listen to it. If you have a smartphone, I should have brought mine, I forgot. I have three different Bible apps, actually four different Bible apps, three different Bible apps that I use regularly. At least two of them. I can hit the little speaker and it will begin to read it to me. There's just something about hearing God's word that I'm not sure we do enough of that we don't listen often enough. Can I challenge you this week to just try something different during your devotions? Listen as God's word is read. But he says that we need to hear God's word and it is only through hearing God's word that we can ever believe. See, it's not enough just to believe. You have to believe something specific and the only way you can believe something specific is to hear God's word explain what that means. But sometimes we hear, and we still don't get it. And that's when you need a preacher. 
In Acts chapter 8, there's that fascinating story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch has been to, to the city of Jerusalem and is heading back to Ethiopia. And in his chariot, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And as he's reading it, he doesn't get it. And God somehow brings Philip, whether it was a miracle or just led him to the right spot, we don't know. But Philip shows up and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, I don't get it at all. And Philip then begins to explain what he heard. I fear, though, sometimes this word preacher throws us for a loop. Because you conclude, that's what Pastor Dan does. He's the preacher, not me. Well, I'm happy to stand up here on Sundays and preach, but that's not really the full understanding of the word. It's actually a word that was used often in the ancient world. See, in the first century, an emperor would pass an edict, a a law, and he had no way to communicate it to the people. And so he had a full army of proclaimers, of heralds, Next month, we're going to celebrate one of those proclamations. You remember it. When Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Can you imagine how much that herald was appreciated? Put yourself in Mary and Joseph's spot. Mary is great with child. You mean I have to go to my ancestral home? That's a three-day walk over arduous territory just because some guy a thousand miles away says I have to? I would guess that the herald probably wasn't always appreciated, but it didn't matter because the herald simply said what the emperor wanted him to. You and I are given the incredible privilege of being a herald. But can preaching really make that big a difference? My guess is, uh, I, I doubt that most of you have heard of the Amar tribe in Northeast India. There's a fascinating story going back to the beginning of the last century. The Amar were some of the last known headhunters in India. They were amongst the most barbaric of all of the tribes in Northeast India. There's one account that a a tea plantation started up not far from their land and they went in and they literally took the heads of 500 of the British and brought them back to their village. The, The British were quite upset and they sent troops in, but they were in the middle of the jungle and they couldn't find anybody to to punish. It got so bad that the British simply decided that they would wall off the Hamar from the rest of India and not allow them out or allow anyone in. A young man by the name of Watkins Roberts went through the Welsh Revival. If you haven't read about the Welsh Revival, I'd encourage you to do so. He came to a saving knowledge of Christ and felt God calling him to go to, of all places, the Hamar tribe in India. And so he made the long journey from Great Britain all the way to India. He came and the British told him, you're not allowed to go in there, it's too dangerous. Anytime I go into there, I have to bring 100 soldiers just to protect me. I don't have any extra soldiers, you can't go in. And so he set up shop in the adjacent community and he set off to try and translate the Bible into the language of the Amar people. He eventually got the Gospel of John translated. He printed off several copies and he set some young men into a number of villages. And one of the villages they ended up in was the capital of the Amar tribe. It just so happened the chief began to hear him read John chapter 3. 
And he stopped the person reading and says, what is this born again? And the person reading says, I don't have any idea. Well, how do I find out? He says, the only way I can imagine is to get the translator to explain it to you. So he sent this piece of paper inviting Mr. Roberts to come and share the truth. And the, the British said, there's no way we're going to allow you. It's deception. They just want your head. They want a British head that they can hang on their, their bamboo huts. But Watkins Roberts went anyway. And as he began to explain the word of God, Chunwanga Pudite, the chief of the Amar people, placed his faith in Christ. Over the next several years, there was as radical a transformation in a people as has ever been seen. The British got upset with Roberts and kicked him out of India, but it didn't stop the change. Chawanga sent his son Rwanda to first Calcutta to get a degree and then from Calcutta to, to Scotland and eventually to the United States where with the help of the Billy Graham Association translated the entire New Testament in the Amar language. I saw an interview from the 1950s on This Was Your Life in which he was highlighted and he made what I thought was a fascinating statement. He says, it is true that my grandfather and father were headhunters but today I'm a heart hunter. Thousands of people have been saved because one man decided to take the gospel. One preacher changed an entire tribe. The word of God is powerful, and we are given the incredible privilege of proclaiming it. But Paul continues, how will they preach if they haven't been sent? Have you been sent? I'm standing up here this morning because as a freshman in college, I was in a missions conference and I very strongly felt God's call upon my life to go into vocational ministry. And I have for the last more years than I want to admit been trying to follow God where he leads. I'm sent. Are you? Well, before you answer that question, let me take you to two passages. The first is the final words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us just prior to his ascension into heaven, uh, Jesus came and he, he grabbed all of his disciples and he said this, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, go. But, but come on, Dan, that was to the disciples. See, it says right there in verse 18, Jesus told his disciples, I, I wasn't one of the disciples. I, that's a long time ago. Okay, let's listen to one of those disciples. In Peter's first letter, writing to normal, everyday people scattered around the Roman Empire. He writes these words, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I would argue strongly that you are sent. The question then becomes, sent to who? 
See, sent can be one of these ambiguous terms. Yeah, I, I'm sent, and I'm, I, I promise to open my mouth when somebody asks a specific question. Do I have a responsibility to initiate the conversation? Do I have a responsibility to speak even when somebody didn't ask? May I suggest that the only hope our world has isn't going to be found in politics, it's not going to be found in the economy, it's not going to be found in a host of places people are turning, it's going to be found when people who know Jesus realize they're sent and proclaim the word so that the Spirit can take the word and produce faith. And people, once they experience faith, call. And then Paul throws out this quote from the book of Isaiah. The quote takes place as Isaiah is predicting that the nation of Israel was about to go into exile and they would go to, to Babylon. And while in Babylon they would experience a number of very frustrating and difficult things, but the day would come when a herald would come and say it's time to return to Israel. And when he did, you will fall down and you will say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I'm guessing most of us don't think of our feet as all that beautiful. And that might be because most of our feet aren't all that beautiful. But sometimes we look at them incorrectly. Donald Gray Barnhouse shares in his commentary of Romans uh, in a, a conversation he had with a good friend who was a missionary doctor in Africa. The missionary doctor was in one of the remote villages and Africa, the third world, has a number of diseases we're not terribly familiar with. And he shared the story of a young man who suffered from elephantitis. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I thought about bringing some pictures, but that they'd have just been too gross. They're the images of the skin turning leathery and appendages swelling. It's not uncommon for the bottom parts of people's legs to grow to 12 to 15 inches in diameter and to begin to look just like an elephant's leg. And he shared the story of a, a young man who suffered horribly with elephantitis, and, and you can imagine with your, your legs swollen, it, it's extremely difficult to even walk. It's painful. And yet this young man came to a saving knowledge of faith, and he was so convinced that he was sent, he began with his goal to go to every hut in the village and share his love of Jesus with them. And so over the course of several weeks, he began to go to every single house. And he was so excited when he finally could say, I have told everyone in the village about Jesus. And that was good for a couple weeks. But then he felt he should go further. There was a village two miles away, and to walk two miles in his condition was difficult, but, but he decided he would get up at, at sunrise every morning and walk the two miles and go in that village to every single hut as well. And then as the sun was setting to make the trip back to his village. It took several more weeks as the travel was long, arduous, and painful. And yet he, with God's help, accomplished his goal. But then he wanted to go further. The next village was 10 miles away. 10 miles was more than he could ever possibly imagine walking. And his, his family convinced him there's no way you can even survive the 10-mile walk. And then one morning they were at the door of the doctor saying, our son is gone. We don't know where he went. As the story would eventually come, he left long before sunrise, walked the four or five hours it took him to get to the next village. 
He began, as people saw his condition, his feet now swollen and bleeding, they offered him food, but he wouldn't eat until he had first begun to tell people of Jesus. And he went to as many houses as he could get to, and the sun set, and it was dangerous. You can imagine the wildlife, the the dangers of trying to traverse in, in total darkness, and yet he decided he would walk the 10 miles home in the dark. He arrived well in the middle of the night and the doctor was awakened but he didn't hear a knock and so he finally got out of bed and he saw this young man and he said he had never seen feet in such horrible condition. He woke his helpers, they brought him into the hospital, they set him down and as the doctor was bandaging his feet, all he could think of is how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I wonder how beautiful are your feet this morning? When was the last time you walked across the street, across the cubicle, to share Jesus with anyone? Paul had this incredible passion, but I wanted to to get to verse 16 because I'm convinced the main point of Paul writing in chapter 10 is certainly to explain the gospel, but to a large degree, I really think that's a a holy rabbit trail, if you will. His point is, okay, what do we do with Israel? Not everyone welcomes the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? That's a direct quote from Isaiah 53. In just a minute, as we come to the table, we're gonna read Isaiah 53, there may be no clearer passage in all of the Old Testament that should have pointed everyone to Jesus. But many didn't see it. So faith comes from hearing, that is the hearing the the good news, but I ask the question, have the people of Israel heard the message? Okay, maybe the reason why the Jews didn't hear is because they hadn't heard. What was Paul's answer? Yes, they have. And then he does something that, at first glance, is a little confusing. He quotes Psalm 19. The message has gone throughout the whole earth, the, whole, the words to the, all the world. Do you remember Psalm 19? Psalm 19 is a psalm of David in which he declares that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. And here's his quote. The voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. David is clearly declaring the general revelation in creation is heard by everybody. There's no place you can go on this planet that you can't see the majesty, the glory, the power of God. Paul used that argument back in chapter one that everyone is without excuse because everyone can see the the majesty of his power and his grandeur. But Paul says the message of Christ has gone everywhere. He's confused, right? Some would argue that he's using hyperbole. That's a perfectly legitimate literary tool And it's possible. But I don't really think that's what he's doing. He's talking about the people of Israel. And I think by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, there's not a Jew alive that hasn't heard the gospel of Jesus. And even if they hadn't heard the specifics, they had the entire Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. They all heard. They knew the truths of Jesus. 
Okay, so they heard it. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe that's the problem, is they didn't understand it. So did the people of Israel really understand? And this is the NLT, because I, I like the way they capture the meaning. Yes, they did. They understood it just fine. And then he goes back first to Deuteronomy 32 and he quotes Moses saying, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation and I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. Moses is saying that when you come into the land and you follow their gods, God will bring his good news to people who aren't part of Israel to make you jealous. If you have kids, you understand this. Go work in the nursery. Somebody plays with a toy for a little bit and sets it down. Then one of the other kids grabs it, and now suddenly, even though I'm done playing with it, that's mine. I, I want it back. We as humans are just naturally jealous. And Moses says God will use that jealousy. He says later, Isaiah spoke to, for the Lord saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I show myself to those who were not asking for me. The Jews heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. So why were they rejected? Regarding Israel, God said, all day long I've opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient. And the NLT says rebellious. I like the NIV, an obstinate people. They heard, they understood, and they said no. Last Sunday, I'm sure most of you realize it was Halloween. I totally forgot it was Halloween. And about five o'clock, we have two dogs at our house, a, a larger dog and a small dog. The large dog was outside and suddenly went berserk. As a good dog owner, I decided I needed to calm her down, and so I went out, and, and there were kids and parents walking past her house in strange outfits and so she felt the need to protect me I guess and she was going crazy and so I opened the door to, to yell at her and my little dog ran out and now he was free not on any chain and he ran straight into the yard and was barking at these kids and, and normally he's pretty good at coming for me but the louder I yelled the more he ran. Brielle joined in the action to try and find them. The parents of the trick-or-treaters joined in, but he would have none of it. He wanted nothing to do. He understood. He heard, but he had no interest in coming. Theo painted a beautiful picture of Israel. They heard God's word. They understood God's word. And they concluded, no thanks. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to earn salvation. I, I've made this whole set of rules. You gave us some. We've added to them. I'm just going to follow this way, and surely you'll have to let me in. Won't you? And Romans chapter 10, it, it really is kind of an interesting uh, play. In Romans chapter 9, it ends with Jesus on the throne, the sovereign of the universe, choosing who he will show compassion to. Chapter N, 10 ends with Jesus standing his arms open, saying, everyone who calls upon my name will be saved. But sadly, the Jews and way too many in Victor and Iowa have heard the gospel, 
have even understood the gospel. I said, no thanks. I'm good. I'll take my chances. And one day, they will spend eternity apart from the presence of the Almighty because there is no salvation except through the name of Jesus. So the question for us this morning is, have you called? If you have, you will be saved. Father, I, I, I thank you for the chance to go to your word this morning. I, I thank you for this very clear understanding of how salvation is found. And God, it is my prayer that every single one of us this morning will have heard, understood, and accepted the gospel. Thank you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.